to The Straight and Marrow, a show that discusses all things allogeneic bone marrow transplant, from pre-transplant considerations to survivorship, using experiences of healthcare providers, patients and carers with current evidence to keep it straight. We are Yvonne, Ming and Alex, nurse consultants and nurse practitioners who are here to keep discussions on The Straight and Marrow. Joining us today, we have Laurie Hobbs. Laurie is one of our social workers and has worked at the Royal Melbourne Hospital since 2006, in the last 14 years as a member of our haematology and bone marrow transplant unit. Prior to this, she worked in several hospitals across Melbourne and has spent time working abroad in both London and Dublin. Welcome, Laurie. We're also joined by Jan. Jan has been a carer for her husband, who's had an allogeneic bone marrow transplant for AMML. Jan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I grew up in country Victoria and I've lived in Melbourne, Perth, Wagga in New South Wales and and more recently down in Tassie. I have a scientific background. I I used to be a dentist, so that's been quite useful to me in my time as a carer. Mm, Because you've got that background? Yep. Well, I've got lots of questions today, like so many, but I tried to boil them all down just in the interests of time. So I guess to start with, Laurie, in your role as a HEME BMT social worker, what are some of the most common experiences and issues that carers come to you with? So I think usually our first involvement with carers is, and their patients is in sometimes in the lead up to their transplant, or for some patients it might be when they're first diagnosed, Mm. depends on, on when they start this connection with the hospital. Our role is to provide emotional and psychosocial support, the practical stuff to patients and their carers. And I suppose it's just to identify any challenges or barriers that they might identify leading up to it. Are there some, some common ones that they have throughout the whole trajectory? I think for a lot of people, and this might have been your circumstance, Jan, it's actually having a base to live in when they have their transplant for mm. people who actually have to relocate from their homes, but yep. you said from Tasmania. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so that's one of the, the scenarios. It's actually sort of linking people into places that can help them create a base where they can be throughout that treatment period. It's varied yep. for every person and it's very different. And I think that's one of the roles of social worker is to respond to what the, the needs are. And it's, it's varied for every person. It can sometimes be guiding people to sort of get their financial situation in order so they can dedicate that time to both being the patient and the carer. And then it's just, I suppose, supporting people with all the emotional adjustments, the roller coaster that people face as they go along. Expecting mm. the unexpected. Yeah, roller coaster. Jan? <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that, that my first interaction with um, Laurie, when she was talking about practical things, was she assisted us getting a, a parking permit, a, a disabled parking <laughs> permit, which might sound like a really small thing, but it was actually really useful for us yeah. because, you know, Jeff was not that well. And just to be able to park close so that he could sort of get out of the car and come in and, you know, those sort of really practical things, yeah. it was really, really helpful. I, I have a patient that I think is years past his treatment now and whenever he comes in for a sort of a follow-up appointment, he still says to me, that parking permit, <laughs> was like, it was like winning the lottery, Laurie. He goes, it just seemed like such a simple thing. I said, look, it, I, I can't say it's the most exciting part of my job, but I remember reading an article once on the 
the average parking cost that mm. people face during their cancer treatments can be something in the thousands of dollars. Wow. So once I sort of learnt about this little creative way to reduce parking and get access to the hospital, it became sort of a, a as you say, it's a, like a, a valuable little thing. Yeah. And, you know. <laughs> Would you say it's fair to say that when you have all these really large life events that seem so uncontrollable and there are so many factors outside of your control that little things like this can help? I hope so. That's, that's yeah. kind of the goal of yeah. what I do. I often use an analogy with patients and family. If you sort of imagine a bookshelf with boxes on it of all the things you think you need to organise if we sort of take them down one by one and trying to resolve them. So, you know, access. So having somewhere to stay, mm. having somewhere to park. Simple, yep. that box sorted, don't need to worry about that. It just metaphorically lifts the pressure and it's one less thing mm. you have to worry about. I suppose that that's kind of the goal and for each person it's a, a different area that they're finding yeah. stressful and, I, and as yeah. you say, yeah, it can be those little things that just take the load off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we were in a fortunate position in that we didn't have small children at home. Mm. We weren't financially challenged and I'd, I'd look at those other people on the ward and think, how do you do it? One of the other really great things about the ward was meeting other families in the family mm. room. And I don't know whether you want to talk about that now, but yeah. that was really, really beneficial for I'd... me. And I think for others, you know, you'd go in there to open up the fridge to, you know, heat up your, your patient's soup or whatever it was that you were doing. And you'd always bump into other people and just chat about, you know, what was happening, what stage you were at. You know, there were mm. always people sort of further down the track than you were and, and less further down the track. And it was, it was really a fantastic sharing space, I guess. A bit of a support network. Mu very much. And, you know, you might just sort of bump into those people once or twice. We ended up making really good friends with two people that we, you know, two different groups mm. of people that we met there and, and have continued to keep in contact with them. And I often think in this COVID time, is that still happening? Is that bumping up against people still happening? Because if it's not, I think it's a great shame. I think there have been some difficulties with <clears throat> trying to facilitate that. In terms of support networks, in your experience, has it been really hard to keep family and friends involved? It's interesting. At Jeff's diagnosis of leukaemia, everybody was on the phone. We were being completely inundated with, you know, texts and phone calls and things. One of our sons said, why don't you write a blog? And Jeff's always been a, quite ah. a writer. So that's what he did. And that was just fantastic. It was fantastic for lots of reasons for us. One was that I didn't have to tell the same story 17 times a day, which was really fabulous. The other was it, it really gave him a focus. And even on those worst possible days where he could hardly drag his head off the pillow, he would mm. get up, he would mm. sit up in bed and write his blog. He wrote it daily to start with. And that really helped him. It helped our family. It kept everybody in contact. And, you know, so many of our family and friends communicated with Jeff via his blog and it was real. well communicated with our whole family really yeah. because it's out there for everybody to read and see and that was really it was really buoying mm. and really encouraging I couldn't speak more highly of it although I was quite actually quite against it in the first instance ah. because I'm quite a private person and I always think oh god why would you want to write a blog and tell everybody you know you know I took three breaths today that sort of thing but it was it actually meant a lot to our our friends and our family and to Jeff. Mm. Mm. I think there's several things there, Jan, that you mentioned that I often go through with patients is that finding the right support network for you. You're quite right that the COVID has impact maybe some of those interactions, but I often say to people it's those organic interactions that are what people develop themselves. 
So it is sort of the incidental meetings of other patients and carers on the ward and finding the people that you connect with because not every patient and every family member will connect. Developing it on your own time is something that's important there. And I think another area that patients and carers can find exhausting is communicating with all the family and keeping Mm. them up to date when there might not be much changing every day. And so again, it's finding ways that you can remain connected at the level that you can control a little bit because as you say it will fluctuate on days when you're not feeling like talking to everyone and you know there's lots of ways people can do that blogs is obviously one of them but you know nominating someone else in the family to sort of be the the contact person group chats and stuff like that so you're sending out the information you want at the time you want but with no expectation that you'll be responding to every messages. What support would you advise patients and families around expecting the unexpected and how to cope with the changing playing field or with their care? I think the answer is sort of in the question is Mm. to expect Mm. the unexpected, which is probably against human nature. We want to know the plan and the dates and what day will this happen. So I, I often sort of say plans are predictions on where we're at now and expect that they'll be adapted and changed. That's a positive thing because we don't want to stick to something that becomes out of date, but I don't think it helps with that feeling of being in control a lot of the time. I think it's actually about expecting the unexpected, trying to go with the flow. Mm. Some people like more information to understand what's changed or what's going on. It's about finding the level that suits you. So if you want that, ask questions, write the questions down, take notes. I think many patients and families have all these questions and you have your clinical appointment or the medical team come in and you forget them all. So mm. um, writing them on the board or on a notepad and stuff like that can be quite vital to help you keep in touch with what's going on. One way that we've managed through that was not to plan too far ahead, mm. you know, minute by minute, you know, hour by hour, that sort of thing, and, and just to accept the, the good things and the bad things as they came along and then work out what the next plan was. You know, we would just jot down notes all day about questions or thoughts or other things that we could ask and then sort of go through those every morning with I would you know make a big effort to be in by the Jeff's bedside in time for the doctor's rounds in the morning so that we could both ask those questions try to understand the answers to them because oftentimes especially you know when Jeff was his sickest he he had a lot of trouble focusing long yeah. enough to put a question together or then to remember the answer when I when I came in. So I just found Absolutely. that if I was in there sort of assisting with that, that dealt really well for us. Two sets of ears yeah. <laughs> are always better <laughs> yeah. than the one. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When it comes to communicating with medical staff and the, the medical team, in a, you know, healthcare professional team in a broader sense, have you got any tips or tricks in how to do that best? I think I would encourage people to do it would be the first thing. It's easy to say don't be intimidated but that's the feedback we want. So if people are struggling to understand what's going on or have questions, we want people to come forward and do that. Again, that's something I sometimes do in my job. People might come to me and say I'm struggling with this area or I don't understand. Do you have any suggestions on how I might approach it? So that can be the role of social work. I've sometimes described it to people there's a role of translating sometimes. Yeah. I'm, I'm not medically trained myself, but I do understand the system mm. and I, I know who's 
who's in the team and who can answer the questions. I encourage people to sort of put their hand up and if there's something they are struggling with to to raise it and it might be with a member of the team they just feel comfortable doing it with, whether that's one of the nurses, as I said, the social worker or any of the medical team, but there's support to do that and, and it's encouraged and, you know, the, the role of the carer is valuable just to say something just doesn't feel right and, and then we can follow up on that. Have you ever experienced that, Jan? Because I've sort of been involved in a paramedical profession, I guess, yep. it's always been my opinion that your treatment of a patient, it, it's a team approach and that's always how we've approached it. Well, we certainly found that the medical team we were involved with were happy to take the time and sit down and answer the questions that you had and sometimes that really amazed me because, you know, they're busy people, they've got a lot of different people that they're seeing on their rounds but never once did I feel or did Jeff feel that they were like, oh, checking the watch and, mm. and you know, we've got, we've got to move on. They just were, seemed to be very happy to take the time that was needed to answer the questions and were, were very clued into the fact that, you know, some days were worse than others and just needed a little bit more time. I've had a lot of experience with medical people over the years and that has not always been my experience, but certainly in the, in the haematology world, I've, I've never ever felt rushed or pushed or my questions were a nuisance. Yeah. That makes me feel encouraged. <laughs> and I think it's a unique environment that it's a long-term relationship. Mm. Yes. So it's, you know, it's not a, a one or two week admission and mm. carry on. So I think, as you say, that development of that relationship with the treating team, it benefits both parties. I think it's important to note that people don't have bone marrow transplants if they don't have a carer and that they are possibly the most important member of the team and... I was just wondering if you had any last words to support future carers. Well, I think as we've just been speaking, trust your trust your instinct, trust mm. your gut. You know your person that you're caring for. Mm. Usually, there'll be a you know a spouse or a, or a child or a parent that you're looking after, and you know those people. You know when they're well. You know when they're when they're struggling. Trust your instinct, and if you're not feeling that you're getting the care that you want for them, just keep pushing. And it really doesn't matter if you upset people along the way. Try as I might, I haven't managed to do that, but they are professionals and you you just need to keep asking, you know, be your person's best advocate. That's all I'd Mm, say. That's great. Laurie? Uh, Well, I think I'd add to that is that you're quite right. The role of the carer is vital and a requirement is sort of progressing to a transplant. But to reassure carers, there's no expectation that you are a nurse, a doctor, a medically trained person, all of those things, you'll be given the the support to monitor those things, oversee them, manage them in a sense. Don't feel overwhelmed that you need to, you know, have a a medical degree or or something. That's our role to do that. But you're the sort of the vital link between the patient and the team. That's a good point. And you're also your your patient's carer. You're your patient's um, cheer squad. Yeah. And and don't lose sight of that either. And we also recognise that that role in itself has its own challenges and so the support is there for you individual in that sense as well. We're there to support the patient but also to the support carer. the carer. So, you know, if the carer is feeling the need to have a one-on-one with someone and have a chat, that's available to them because we want to support the person who does the support. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Thanks for listening and hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we have. If you have any queries for the Straight and Marrow team or suggestions for future shows, 
please email us at straightandandmarrow at gmail.com. Although our team are experienced healthcare providers, we are unable to give individual medical advice. If you have a medical query, please speak to your treating team. See you next time at the Straight and Marrow and don't forget to subscribe to receive podcast updates.